That's fine. Uh, Welcome back to the show, Josh. I appreciate you, uh, you know, taking the time this time to find out. I didn't want to tell my story by myself. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's right. I, I didn't, you know, I don't, I've done speaker meetings, but like, I wanted to be able to like to bounce off somebody. So I figure since we had such a fun combo for years, yeah, why not, that's you know, <laughs> why not do it again this way? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I did, I ended up doing a, a, a solo kind of intro for myself and, um, I do, I do kind of regret not having had someone kind of do an interview with that. Like it was fun. It was fine to be able to tell my own story, but man, I get, I get off on some tangents and sometimes I need someone, <laughs> someone <laughs> to rein me in. So I understood. Yeah, exactly. Well then, uh, if you want to just get started, man, let's, let's start at the beginning. All what, right. Uh, you know, what, what led you into what you feel was active addiction? Um, I would say the main, I didn't know this then, you know, I know this now that grief and loss was like my first introduction to like using drugs and alcohol as a way to escape. Um, eventually there was other ones that pop up, you know, that became triggers like uh, frustration, you know what I mean? And anxiety and those kind of things. But the main thing early on was like, you know, I discovered alcohol when I was 11 and it was, you know, harmless, you know, just like, like stealing some Captain Morgan, making Captain and Cokes and watching the Outsiders. You know what I mean? Like that was like what we did. And that's like my introduction to alcohol. And then you say you say discovered. So it was like what a treasure that you found. <laughs> like what, what makes you feel like the word discover explains how you had your first set of drinks? I would say because it was like that. Oh, shit. This is what it is. You know what I mean? Like when I say like when you discover something, it's like you have that feeling of, OK, this is what the adults are always raving about. You know yeah. what I mean? And I also say discovered because like I literally found it in my parents' basement. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it kind of was like a treasure. And yeah, I wasn't the, I wasn't the kind of kid that like poor, you know, diluted either after I used it. My parents weren't drinkers. You know, oh, they would gotcha. throw they would throw big parties. They knew how to throw a party. So then after the party would end, all the liquor would go into the basement on, like, the shelves, collecting dust. Oh, you gotcha. Know? So it's not like they were, like, constantly drinking where they're going to see the levels change. And I figured I would have a better chance of getting caught if I did try to add, like, water to it or something like that. Right. So I was just like, you know, and plus, we were in fifth grade. It's not like we were heavy-handed with our pours, you know. <laughs> we were mixing it with Coke and watching, you know. But then when I was 12 and someone died... Um, that I was friends with growing up, you know, we played hockey together growing up and, you know, he was in a car, he was hit by a car and he didn't make it. And, um, that was like the first time I experienced death in my yeah. life, you know, at least like that I can remember. I'm like, I had great grandparents and shit like that, that passed away when I was younger, but like, I didn't really, this first person I really knew, you know, and what we thought with well, a solution was to get out of our bad feelings was to drink. Like, that was our genius idea. Like, oh, we feel bad. Let's get drunk. Like, this will make us feel better. So then, do you, do you yeah. feel like up until that point, like when you when you got to the point of discovering alcohol, was that was that um, filling a void that you already felt like you had at that young of an age? Or was it just a fun thing that you guys did? And then now you have an experience of, oh, this also can be used for this. It was a fun thing that I did. You know, it wasn't, I wasn't ever trying, like, I was really lucky, you know, unfortunate growing up with my parents and, you know, brother and sister and everything like that. Like, they're all normies, 
and you know they got it you know long and i was always on vacation so i got i was very lucky you know growing up yeah sure so i wasn't trying to escape anything until i needed to escape something and you know, i wasn't always escaping with alcohol like yeah i partied in my teens like on the weekends that's what we did but that and was that, your first instance of i can uh, use this to numb my pain yeah and this is a the significant amount of pain that can be numbed with yeah, a significant so, amount of alcohol Exactly. And then going through adolescence, you know what I mean? And going through puberty, you have a lot of feelings that you're trying to not feel, you know what I mean? Like, you know, heartbreak and all that kind of stuff. And your body's changing, your voice is changing, people are getting made fun of. So you have more reasons to escape as you get older. When I say you, I mean me, you know, I started getting more and more reasons to escape as I was going, but I just still didn't know I was escaping. I just thought I was just like, that's what you did. When you didn't feel good, you drank. This is what I thought people did. Again, no one was telling me this. This is just what I thought. Yeah. So, you know, I always had an we, excuse. We make up a lot of our own truths when we're kids. <laughs> yeah, we, exactly. The outside world tells us that's true. We, we just make up a lot of stuff. And we're like, okay, this is true for me. Yeah, that makes yeah. Uh... My first time being like, that I can remember being like smashed, like hammered drunk was seventh grade going into... 2000 like 99 to 2000 like y2k kind of thing okay you know we all didn't know what was going to happen yeah there was, and then my parents again they threw parties and there was a huge new year's eve party at my house and we're just like sneaking kamikazes all night and you know i might have had like seven or eight nine kamikazes and i don't mean like shots i mean like cups like solo yeah, cups yeah. of the drink <laughs> and i that was the first night i blacked out and so in between those times, so the first time you drank with a purpose, right? Because before it was just kind of a fun thing you did. You yeah. drank with a purpose to cover that pain. And then to this point of a blackout drink, how often do you feel like you were drinking? Like how many times do you think that you were going to that bottle to, to relieve a pain? Or was it just still kind of fun after that? It was it was a lot of fun still. It okay. was a lot of fun. Um, you know, I thought it was fun, but looking back in retrospect, there were a lot of times that I was numbing and it wasn't for fun. You know, at the time though, I thought it was, this is for fun. This is normal. This is what everybody's doing, you know, but I didn't know that what I was doing with the relationship with it. And I mean, even at 16, I got alcohol poisoning, you know, I wasn't, I was in the hospital with alcohol poisoning at 16 the night before Easter. So this was that that was after the first blackout though, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I yeah, mean, I, what I was leading different. up to the first blackout, you're you're saying that you're, you know, you're still just drinking kind of for fun. It's 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 sporadic. It's not like you're not pounding away every single day. You're just still kind of a, a kid exploring this thing, and then boom, you have your first blackout. Yeah, and okay. and I and everybody blacked out that night. Like, my friends that I was with that were drinking in my house, you know what I mean, for this party that we were, like, sneaking drinks in my bedroom. Because that's how it was in seventh grade. Like, I had my own awesome. room, and we were sneaking drinks into it and, like, watching MTV Countdown, you know? Nice. And I don't remember much after that. I remember falling <laughs> down my steps. <laughs> my room was the attic, so, like, I had these weird steps that, like, curved a bunch of times, and you could easily fall down that shit. Gotcha. Um, but I no, was I was black out the same night. Like I, me and my <laughs> friends were trying to fight a party and I remember I was like making out with some girl in the back of a, a Jeep or something. And we were just driving around Portland and there's like fireworks going off and, and we're just trying to find some part. We never found a party, but I, I remember blacking out right after the ball dropped. Like, well, at least that's where my, you know, the tape doesn't <laughs> continue after that. That's yeah. funny. Yeah. We got yeah. that commonality. 
and we're both just completely gone. Yeah, that I mean, I'm not sure. We, uh, it's a, I'm sure it's a shared story that people don't even remember because <laughs> it's over 20 years ago. Right. You know, but like for me, it was like the first blackout. You know, so I remember that. That's the only thing I remember about it is it was the first blackout. Ironically. What did that uh, mean for you the next day? Like, what did you feel about losing a part of your life, essentially? It, it was a rite of passage. Yeah. Okay. It, it, honestly, I woke up and I put on the mummers, you know, in Philly, where yeah. I'm from. Like, I grew up right outside of Philadelphia, like minutes, and in Jersey. And in Philly, every year on New Year's Day is the mummers parade, where it's like craziness. Everyone's in costumes and, you know, they're doing this whole parade. And it's, it's a big tradition. It's been over 100 years there. So okay. you, you wake up hungover and you watch Mummers on New Year's Day in our area. It's like it's literally a rite of passage in our area to like wake up hungover and watch Mummers. So it was like, yeah. all right, I'm, I'm in the club now. Yeah. So like, so I mean, a hangover, yeah. But you were <laughs> concerned? Were you, did you have any concern about the fact that you know you blacked out that you'd actually lost part of your day? No, no. I I heard that that happens sometimes, and to me, like I was, I was like, well, I propped my cherry on blacking out. You know, I, I yeah. was I was into it, man. I. I, I thought that's what you did. I thought it was cool. I didn't know what I didn't know what alcoholics were. I thought alcoholics were homeless. You know, you don't know unless you unless you grow up and with parents that are alcoholic and you they go to AA and and you hear them say certain things. You don't know that. You're just you're blind to it, especially in the '90s and the early 2000s. Oh sure, yeah. If you don't have any family that's uh, that that's an alcoholic, up until that point, what what our experiences of alcoholics were were like Skid Row style. Like yeah. if you weren't if you weren't bumming around on uh, downtown of wherever you're at, then then you're fine. Like everything else is gold. I I had the same experience when I blacked out. It was like, oh, that was funny. And then I'd hear stories, and then it just became this big joke. Even though I'm essentially giving myself brain damage, like <laughs> it just became a funny thing. Like, oh, what did I do yeah. yesterday? <laughs> I owned it, man. Like I yeah. doubled down. Like my nickname at one point in high school was Mess. You know what I Gosh. mean? Because of how drunk I would get, and just I'd black out. And again, like I was just like the fun guy at the party that would black out. But like, you know, a lot of the times I was drinking, you know, that night because I had a bad day, you know, and that was like I was going to go extra hard, you know, and I I, I did not that I had a bad day when I was 16 when I got alcohol poisoning. It was the whole I was late to the party. Oh, yeah. You had to catch up. Yeah. The party was in the woods and I forget why I was late, but I was late. I think we were waiting on our runner, you know, because we're like 16, so we couldn't buy it. So yeah. we had to like pay somebody always. So we were waiting on that person and they got me the wrong thing. They got me Bacardio and it was a fifth of it. And I drank it in 10 minutes. Oh, man. Catch that. Like, yeah, like, gotta... yeah, they were like timing me and shit, like chugging it bottle straight in the air. Like, I think oh, I got 27 seconds, my longest chug. Geez. Like, I ended up passing out against the tree, you know, and. They um, it's back in the woods where people would bike, you know, BMX and all that kind of shit. So there's a lot of ramps, like wooden ramps, like plywood. So they rolled me on one. They called an ambulance and they started carrying me out of the woods on this piece of plywood. And as soon as they saw cops, though, they dropped the piece of plywood and I landed on my head. Um, And I don't remember much from the hospital. I remember like, you know, how it's cold in the hospital. Yeah. Well, like my dad was there and he brought my brother. My brother was 13, so my brother could see what alcohol does to you. Okay. And, like, I'm sitting there, and I'm like, put my cigarette out. It's, like, burning my arm. Put my And, really, it was the metal from the bed touching oh, my arm. Gotcha. And oh, I man. Thought so it was, you were delirious. I was drunk as shit, you know. And 
uh, my dad's like, oh, so he smokes cigarettes too. You know yeah. what I mean? So like, that's how he found out that I smoke cigarettes. Cause was until this, then, was this a revelation moment for them as well, that your drinking actually was out of hand? Like I'm yeah. guessing they knew that you drank at this point, but maybe they didn't know just how far gone it was. Yeah. They knew I was drinking. I mean, they knew everybody drank. Yeah. <clears throat> that was the thing. It was like, but I wasn't allowed to, and I was still doing it anyway. Oh, sure. You know, cause especially you give me a rule, I'm going to find a way to break it. You know, that's like how I was. And I'll, I'll give my dad credit. He gave me the, one of the best punishments that you could, like, give somebody. Because this was, you know, April of my sophomore year, March, whatever, because it was Easter. Okay. Um, the, the next day was Easter. <laughs> I woke up on Easter morning, like, in a hospital room in my, in my living room on the couch. But I don't remember much besides, like, oh, this cigarette burning my arm in the hospital. Um, and my dad's punishment was I wasn't allowed to sleep out for the rest of high school. Oh, you couldn't leave. You I couldn't spend overnights anywhere. Yeah, because that that was I was like that night I was saying, oh yeah, I'm sleeping over like blah blah blah's house. Yeah. And so they weren't expecting me home that night. So that's why his punishment was no more sleeping over someone's house. And that's reasonable. He stuck to it. He's. Nice. I mean, you know. Well, that more was, importantly, you stuck to it because if my parents had told me that, I'd just I'd have just ran away. <laughs> I would have, I mean, one of the times I ran away and, and became homeless was because, you know, my grandma didn't want me smoking at home or something ridiculous like that, <laughs> you know? So yeah, you, you stuck to it too. So part, I mean, a part of you had to know that you needed this kind of stability. Oh, yeah. Right? It like, was, yeah. I, I commend them all the time for that being an amazing punishment because like changing my curfew wouldn't have done anything, you know what I mean? Or grounded yeah. me for a week or two wouldn't have done shit except maybe go hard again next time I went out. Were you still sneaking and drinking even with that punishment? Just not as much? Oh, oh, I was still drinking on the weekends. Yeah, I was still going out on the weekends and getting drunk. But just you making know, it home? I was, yeah, making it home and not getting as drunk. You know, and then yeah. I think junior year is when I was just like, uh, fuck it. Like, I play football, everybody drinks. Like, they're going to expect this. You know, as long as I'm not drinking and driving, then they're going to be happy. And I and I wasn't drinking and driving in high school. Luckily, like I was, I lived in a small enough area that you could walk everywhere. Like oh, our okay. town was one square mile, so you could literally walk one end to the other and back again. Like back in the day, we would get like bottles of vodka in a backpack and pour it into Gatorade bottles and walk around town and drinking like Gatorade but full of vodka. You know that's the way our town was set up. So when you weren't drinking, did, did you, you know, did, a lot of people's stories is that they don't fit in, right? Like that the drinking is like a, a plug for that, not really feeling like you're a part of society or that you fit into the world. Did you have that kind of drive for drinking or? No, man, I played sports. All, I played sports all year round. Like my family, we were never home for like dinners. We didn't have family dinners because either I was in a sport, my brother or my sister you know, we were always doing something. And so I had, a, you know, I had friends in different groups. You know, I was friends with somebody in this clique and that clique and this clique. It didn't matter. I wanted to be friends with everybody. So I yeah. think that was more it. It wasn't that I didn't feel like part of. I just wanted to be part of. Yeah. It, but you, so yeah. you didn't like get to the party and feel anxious until you drank. Like it wasn't a social lubricant for you. You were already kind of a part of the party even before you drank. No, I, it definitely was a social lubricant. And I found out later in life that I didn't need that. It was just something from an early age I thought I did need. 
sure. you know, since I was coming coming of age, you know, coming into adolescence and everything with alcohol already as like a party thing, it just it was a part of me. So I didn't think that I could be fun or funny or anything unless I was drunk. Yeah, you know? yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that's that's yeah. pretty similar to a lot of people's stories. But yeah, but by senior year, I didn't even play any sports. I was just like, eh, I'm not going to play football. Like my senior year, like not like I was good or going to be going pro or even playing in college. But still, it's your senior year. You should have probably played. And I didn't want to because it was going to interfere with my work schedule. And I needed to work to be able to pay for drinking. So at that point, that's when the, the, the table flipped. And now drinking is more important, or at least, you know, the consumption yeah. of these things is now more important than anything else. Like this is now taking the front row seat. Up until then, it was kind of like, it sounds like a gray area for you. It was definitely a gray area. That was the first time that I chose like to party over anything else. Like that was like, you know, I played sports my entire life. And then now I'm just like, now nah, I'm done with it. I'm just going to drink. Yeah. You know, like before that, it was like, oh, no, I have to do this first and then I'll be able to drink after. But by senior year, it was definitely like, oh, no, I got to drink. I'm going to be drinking. Like I started working at 13, not because I had to to pay bills, but because I didn't want to ask for money to pay for cigarettes and beer. Right. You know what I mean? Because right. like I was already smoking almost a pack a day by the time I was 13 and my parents don't smoke. I would just always be at people's houses that their parents smoked. So when I came home, like, oh, I was, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, oh, well, their parents smoked. That makes sense. Did so, you have any, did you have any, like, um, parental pressures to, you know, play sports or to have, like, certain certain academics? Like, what was their reaction to you quitting football? No, not, you know, they were already busy as, busy enough with my brother and sister in sports, too, which is one, one less thing. You know, I think my dad said to me something like, you know, you might want to play because you're going to look back and probably w- wish you had. And I was just like, yeah, maybe, but probably not. You know, it's, it's not a big deal. And he's like, I understand, you know, I, I, my dad's a workaholic. So he gets the fact that I wanted to work, you know, and not necessarily knowing that the drive for work was for beer money and yeah, cigarettes. Right. You know, everyone has different drives when they're workaholics at different points, I feel like. So, yeah, but yeah, and I calmed down drinking eventually, like, Senior year was wild. Like, at one point, we did 56 straight nights, at least a six-pack a night, school nights and everything. Like, it, we were going for a record. We got challenged. I think it was around Thanksgiving that, like, the class was back from college, you know, would have people come back from school the next year. Yeah. And we were hanging out with people, somebody that graduated. And they're like, oh, we did, like, 35 straight nights. And I was like, we can break that, you know. And we did, like, yeah. 56. And the only reason it stopped is because we all went to Disney World for a senior trip. Besides that, like, we kept going again after that. But I calmed down for a little bit when I moved to Massachusetts. Like, my dad had gotten a job, like, had transferred. He got a promotion to go up there from Jersey. And he was commuting back and forth for six months for my senior year. Every Thursday, he would drive back to Jersey, and every Sunday, he would drive to Massachusetts and live out of a hotel for six months. Was this just to make sure that you graduated from the same high school? It was, yeah, let me, he was giving me an opportunity to finish high school where I started. That's pretty impressive. So you had, yeah. a, you had a pretty supportive family, it sounds like. Oh, or at least yeah. your story doesn't seem to revolve around, like, the dysfunction of your home life. It just not was, whatsoever. you just had this attraction yeah. to not going the way they went. You know, was to try things on my own and find my own way. Yeah, but you and, had the freedom to do that without 
and it doesn't sound like you have any resentments or anything towards them, which is uh, not common. That's not a common thing amongst the no. Southeast. You know, usually there's that that deep seated like my father's a piece of shit and my mom's an asshole kind of thing. No. And that's it. It, it is good because there's people that I don't think really resonate with that. So I think you're going to resonate with a lot of people that had a normal family but still ended up finding you know their way to. Yeah, man, my my fourth step was all resentments against myself. It wasn't resentments against my family. Like, my brother and sister and my parents, they couldn't have been more supportive the entire time. Yeah. You know, they would even, even when I got bad, they would tell me how bad I needed help, and they would offer to help, and I was just, you know, not ready. That's You know, and I would just point to other people as examples in our lives. Like, look at this person. Look, they went to rehab six times. Look at that person. Look at this person. Yeah. They weren't ready, and that's why they keep on coming back and relapsing. I'll be ready, and I'll let you know. Let me figure it out. And they let yeah. me figure it out, you know. And, but, anyway, we moved to Mass eventually, and I was good. Like, I lost a bunch of weight. I didn't know anybody. And then I got a good job at Best Buy. And then, was, was college on the, the track record for you, or you were, you were very, I you went were to community sure college. Were. I went to community college for a year and a half up there. Okay. I had, I had only like applied to two schools. I wasn't, to me, you could work in business and get just as much experience as you would from a college. Gotcha. Okay. So that's what I was mostly looking to do. And once I got started with Best Buy, I moved up with them pretty quick. And then to the point where I could move back to Jersey, where I wanted to be with my friends and have a good job my own place so that's what best buy gave me was enough money to be able to move back on my own and get my own apartment at 20 years old so i had my own place and i was the only person that had their own place at 20. so it became party central again and just full-on drinking and partying from 20 and a half years old to almost 22. there was always a party at my house we were either at the bar and ending in my house start out or just stay um but by 22 it's like kind of i was done with it you know i was bored with drinking it wasn't working anymore um i tried a bunch of hallucinogenics like i was doing acid a lot mushrooms a lot but like they weren't things you could do every day to escape <laughs> were there so, the only thing i haven't heard so far is like um you know relationships like women in your life did you have many relationships did you have girlfriends at all like i mean i'm sure you had dates and dating women that you dated but there was girls that like i hooked up with here and there you know there were a lot of they were even usually friends i was friends more with girls than guys yeah i was and you know what i mean and just because i i don't even know why i've looked into it i've talked to my therapist about it and i think it's a trust thing where like there's just a lot of guys where i just don't trust because I've seen how they talk by themselves without other people around. And I'm like, I don't like the way you're thinking, you know? So like, and I felt like maybe I could protect them. I don't know. When my sister was born, I was nine. And I remember being nine and thinking like, all right, I can never talk to a girl in a way that I would want somebody to talk to my sister. You know, no, I was nine, and I remember thinking that, like, you know, so anybody I ever talked to and I encountered through puberty and adolescence, like, I was always really respectful because I almost treated them like my sister. I was king of being in the friend zone. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I well, mean? I, I don't know. The friend zone is that, that that weird, cringy, like, I do things, I expect something kind of a, a friend zone. It doesn't sound like no. you were in the no. friend zone. It just sounds like that that wasn't a priority for you. Like, getting in a relationship and having a girlfriend wasn't a priority. 
it was I always said that when I date somebody, it's gonna be somebody that I want to marry. I'm not gonna okay. waste my time. I'm gonna know, and I'll yeah. know, like that's it. And I'll get even to my first, like my real first relationships with pills that I discovered at 22. Like I, I had dipped and dabbed in pills here and there, but like there was, you know, the one time where you have that, you get so high, you're just like, I need to chase this high every time. Yeah. So that and was it. That was the, the drinking had stopped really being effective. You started doing less of the partying and then you messed October with October 2008. And then boom, the pills. Where, yeah. how did that, how did that happen? How did you get introduced to us? I, like I said, I had done them here and there, but nothing crazy. You know, if somebody had them, I'm like, yeah, why not? I'll take two. It was always, I'll take two, you know? What and is, what are the pills specifically that you're talking about? It, these were perk tens. They were, okay. yeah, they were the yellow, you know, skinny ones. You know, we called them bananas okay. or we, we called them school buses, depending on which brand they were, um, because they were fat and yellow or they were skinny and yellow. So, but within a month, I discovered that there were the blue 30s that were cheaper than buying three bananas for $10 a piece. You could buy a 30 for $20. So, you know, and then you could crush up this 30 and sniff it and get high right away. And that's where, like, and I knew pretty early on that I was addicted. Like, and I knew, like, I had a conversation with myself. Like, I was with my buddy that he just got his, like, wisdom teeth taken out, and he was passed out from five milligrams. He didn't know that I was taking them, but I had done 430s before I sat down in his apartment, and I was good. I was fine. And I'm like, shit, yeah. maybe, uh, okay, let's evaluate this. And I, I mean, literally— you weren't, you weren't fine. You were just not passed out. Like, I mean, because you, you were— Yeah, you were high as shit, so you weren't fine, but you, in comparison— But yeah, I was awake. Perks yeah, would wake me up. You know, yeah. when I when I sniffed a line of a 30, like I would I could clean, I had energy, you know, they didn't knock me out. You know, that's when I knew it was like this is a problem. So when I saw how he happening. reacted. Yeah. Yeah. And then I had this like conversation with myself, like, don't do heroin. As long as you stick to these, you're gonna be fine because you love the way this makes you feel. It's like a relationship. You love the yeah. way it makes you feel. You love that it's not mean to you and doesn't make you feel bad and it's always there for you. And that's why I say it's the first love of my life, you know. How, how did you know that heroin would have been the next step for you? Like, how did you know that was your boundary that you had to put up? I, I had seen people go that route already. You know, I so was already was selling them at this point. Oh, within gotcha. within okay. a month, I was selling pills to gotcha. support my habit because I was doing them every day. And that's like yeah. sometimes a hundred dollar a day habit. So I would have to sell them to make up that money. So I would see people like all of a sudden I don't see somebody anymore in the herd. I hear, oh, they're doing heroin now. So that's how I started hearing like that's what that was the progression. And I said to myself, you're in control of this. But if you do heroin, you're going to lose all that control. And I stuck to that. You know, I'll skip ahead nine and a half years. I didn't do heroin once. But it was only because I was so functioning on pills that I lasted for 10 years doing them. Almost. Either every day I either obsessed about it or I did it. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, won't I, know say- I know a lot of people that they 
you know, especially with, with, uh, with, with substance addictions versus alcohol. I mean, alcoholics do it too, but they have those boundaries that just keep getting pushed back that goalpost. You know, my mom had those same kind of boundaries with meth, you know, it was like, okay, I'm going to do this once in a while, but not every day. And then once every day hits, it's like, okay, well, I I'm doing it every day. You start copping, please. And then next thing, you know, it's intravenous. And, uh, it's, it's interesting that you, you stuck with that boundary. I did too. I did not, I refused to do meth and I refused to do heroin and even ecstasy because it was so closely related. Um, and I was able to stick with that, but man, I could not stick with any of those with alcohol. I, I adjusted and moved the goalposts constantly with alcohol to make sure that I could get as much as I wanted. Did you have those kinds of, um, metrics for the pills? Like did you within the pills, you had those boundaries that you just were like constantly moving around? I had a lot of rules for myself, like most like addicts that I think it, I think it, I think when you are honest with yourself early on and you know, you're an addict and you're, and you self admit to yourself, like, yeah, I have a problem. I'm addicted to these. Then it's a lot easier to set rules for yourself because you're already being honest with yourself. Right. Yeah. So like, and I did have rules, but I broke a lot of them. Like you said, you know, and it was pills. It was a lot of it was always like you said, ecstasy. Like it wasn't hard for me to break that rule. Like, you know, this is what it took, right? I, my friends had the keys to my apartment because like they were always there anyway. A lot of the times you needed somewhere to go to smoke or just drink while I was at work and then they would clean up the place for me. Okay. So the same person I had my, yeah, the same person I had, the one time I walked in there was brownies on my table and with a, note, with a note saying, you know, come to Vinny's, there's more, the good ones are there and these are some of the rest. Like they just broke in and made a bunch of brownies and cleaned my apartment and then locked the door on their way out. Seems um, yeah, that's good friends. So the same person I had my first drink with, I don't have to even say his name. And but we were I was just laying in bed. It was like a Friday night, and him and our other best friend walk in. They're like, Hey, we're gonna do some ecstasy. And they like drop a bag full of pills. And I'm like, nah, man, it's Friday night, it's ten o'clock. Like, I'm exhausted. Like, I'm just gonna go to bed. And the one guy's like, well, I guess there's going to be a drug that I'll have done that you haven't done. I'm like, all right, give me two. <laughs> like, again, two. Just that was my rule. <laughs> like, yeah. when I tried acid, give me two. Like, yeah, everyone says, was, like, oh, try half. Like, no, give me two. Yeah, I was always the overachiever when it came to uh, hallucinogenic drug use, for sure. And I had the same kind of rules. Like, you know, oh, okay, I'm not going to do meth. And then because it's a chemical and blah, blah, blah. I had all these weird reasons. And then someone's like, hey, do you want to do these three tabs of acid like yeah do you have six can can we do that and it would not take very much convincing at all yeah yeah i've done six at one time before i was in the mountains in virginia visiting a friend at school and i you know was you build up a tolerance to acid when you do it a lot oh, yeah. you know back That's to like back sure yeah and so like by the time like a week in i've done it like three times i needed six to you know trip so, but I was tripping balls walking around. Like we left our cell phones cause I hate being like on my cell phone when I'm on acid. I feel like you always gotta do it with a friend. And I feel like you never should have your cell phone because you shouldn't talk or look at outside things cause it'll only yeah. just fuck up your head. Like I had so many rules for that too. Oh man, and, you're an agent here. I, I did mine without, uh, we didn't have cell phones. There was no cell phones <laughs> when I was doing it. Yeah, been, no, I was probably had the same room. Cell phones had just come out when I tried that. When I tried acid, it was 2008, and I was in my apartment, and we had been looking for it for a while, like all summer long. Like this is when Blu-ray was huge, and like I had yeah, this big sure. surround sound from Best Buy because I was working there at oh, the time. Yeah. And um, so I had bought Across the Universe on Blu-ray, 
and I had refused to actually open it and watch it for the first time until I tried acid. So it sat in the wrapper, nice. like on my TV stand, like DVD stand until I tried it. And then, like I said, my place was just random. Like people would just show up and just like drink or smoke. And we're smoking a blunt with these random people. I still don't even know what her name was to this day. And my buddy and I were like, yeah, we've been looking for acid. We can't find it though. It sucks. She goes, oh, I can get it. And like 10 minutes later, it was there. So nice. like, then we kicked everybody out, including her, because I didn't want to. <laughs> Because <laughs> I just wanted to drop acid and not have anybody there that wasn't also going to be on acid. So, 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 so your your main thing is the pills. You've decided. It sounds like internally that that's just something you're going to do, and you've accepted that. You've accepted that these are just going to be a regular occurrence. You have some rules set up, but it doesn't sound like the rules genuinely apply to the pill intake. As long as you're not going into heroin and, and meth. What was that? You said nine to ten years. What was that period? like for everybody else around you like it sounds like you had that party room but were you still productive at work did, did anything change with like your personal life is, is this when you did start getting into relationships still no relationships um i wasn't good in, i i didn't feel like i could be good for anybody you know i was a drug addict you know and i knew that and but i was still going to work every day don't get me wrong i was still showing up to work i was getting promotions at work actually yeah um but I was starting to feel broken by July 2009, like not even a year in, I was, I was exhausted already. And so, and my parents lived in Massachusetts still six hours away. So it's not like they were on top of me while I was going through this. Yeah. It's not like they were seeing me going through this. So did you see them you know, fairly regularly? No, like, you know, twice, three times a year because I would work and they would work and, you know, I had to work Thanksgiving because of black Fridays and oh, all yeah. that shit. So like, yeah, it wasn't like, you know, I was always up there and, um, what do you think they thought you were doing? Like you just were a fairly successful kid, like working at, at Best they, Buy, you had a normal life. I was drinking. Gotcha. They, you know, they knew I drank, they knew I partied, you know? And so I, I'm pretty sure they just thought, well, he's just partying it up. He's that age. And I called him up. I was like, I'm exhausted. I'm coming back. You know, I'm going to transfer to Best Buy up there. And just come back to work up there, part like full time, just a regular. And this employee, is 2009 now. This is 2009. Yeah, not even a year oh, into my addiction, I bought like six okay. Suboxone pills, and you know, drove up there on July 5th. And you know, my parents were ironically in Jersey at the time for yeah. Fourth of July, and I was driving with one of my best friends up to Mass. Like he drove the U-Haul, and I drove my car. And then we had brought a bunch of Suboxone for me and brought a bunch of weed and brought a bunch of acid. For, for, <laughs> folk, for folks that might not have gone the pill route, what's Suboxone? Suboxone is the medicine that you take to withstand withdrawals. So a lot of people will take like, you're supposed to take a quarter at a time or an eighth at a time if you're trying to taper. I, w I wasn't trying to stay on subs. There's people that get addicted to Suboxone because they have sure. to have it because then if you don't have the suboxone then you start withdrawing from that oh, gotcha. um so i was just on a straight taper you know where i was starting at a quarter and then working down to an eighth and then i was doing little bits and pieces that you put under your tongue and you feel relief and by the time i was done the six i was good but so you I, already knew how to detox off of pills after a year of abusing them you'd learned enough about the the whole community yeah. i guess of this from dealing them that you knew how to actually yeah wean yourself off of them that's pretty interesting 
I, I read a lot too. Like I would get high and read. You know what I mean? Like. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, so I would like read about other people and how they got sober. Oh, okay. Um, so you were and, interested in that kind of idea of getting sober. I needed to know how other people did it. You know, but I wasn't an alcoholic. You yeah. Know? I'm smiling as I say it because I obviously I was, but I didn't know what being an alcoholic was for years later because I went right back into drinking again up there. And then 2009, Massachusetts, anybody in Massachusetts that's watching or listening to this knows was a hotbed for opiates. So it wasn't long before my mind that went with me back to mass started finding them again. But you were for sure that you, when you when you went up to Massachusetts, the point of that was to quit. Like it was a geographic. You were you were moving yeah. away from your your you know your away home away from home to be with family to detox off of this medication. You you went in there knowing that you wanted to quit the opiates, but, but not like, feeling no, like alcohol yeah. was a problem. Yeah, correct. Okay. Yeah, I never thought alcohol was a problem. You know, because I didn't understand how one led to the other, and for years later, because it's not like when I was starting the box and I was going to meetings and talking to people, I was trying to do this shit on my own. Yeah. You know, well, and then at this point, that's what yeah. you've done. For and I, I moved 30 times in 15 years, dude. Yeah. 2005, I graduated high school. And within 15 years of, you know, up to 2018, I moved 27 times when I got sober. And I moved a bunch of times in sobriety. But like, yeah, it was, I think, 27 from when I graduated to when I went to rehab. And it was a lot of back and forth between Mass and Jersey because I kept running, you know. Um, when I came back to Jersey, it was like 2010. It wasn't that long. Got right back into pills even heavy again, you know, selling them, um, doing them every day. You know, I was driving like 45 minutes to work every day up up in PA, and I would just get high on the way, you know. And that was easy for me because I would do mid-shifts. My dealer was always awake by the time I would need to leave town, grab them and go because I was making good money. Um, and I, what was, kept... what was that, that transition? Okay. So you come up to Massachusetts, you're, you're wanting to quit. This is the first time you've told yourself that you want to quit, that you're done. <clears throat> what did, what did it take for that, that now new rule to, to be broken? What, what was the, was it the friend dropping the bag on the, on the bed kind of a situation? Or was it just like, I'm going to do, I, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do it anyways. Like, what was that? Like? It was about, it was availability. It was me finding out that I could get them. That's all it took. There wasn't an internal monologue. There wasn't that light switch where you're like, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and do this anyways. It was just as uh, soon almost as I autonomous. Knew, yeah, as soon as I knew I could get them again, I did them again. I, I figured, well, at least they're not the same people in Jersey that I'm buying them from, so I won't go out of control as much because I'm not going to be able to buy them as easy because this is a 45-minute excursion just to get them. Which as makes opposed, no sense. <laughs> you <laughs> like, know, but this based was like, on your usage, like – that's I get that. Yeah. Yeah. You're telling yourself that. But like, that's not Oh, it's no. different people. So it's fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. this is like, you know, my dumbatic mind at the time. Oh, sure. And but I'm going back and forth again. And eventually, like, um, and I, I do start, you know, talking to somebody that I grew up with, you know, her and I, we were good friends growing up. And she at this time was bipolar schizophrenic. Um, she had had a horrible situation happen and, you know, the switches turned on and she's bipolar schizophrenic and an alcoholic that was drinking to take away the voices. And so, when you say talking to somebody, this is now a potential love interest. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yep. So then we just started co-signing each other's bullshit. Oh yeah. 
you know what I mean? Like I co-signed her drinking, she co-signed my usage and that's, you know, and it was, I don't want to say toxic. We were, we loved each other. You know, she was my best friend. She was the only person I really trusted. You know, I told her literally everything and anything that was on my mind. We, and that's how our friendship was up until the day she died. Um, because, you know, eventually everything got too much for her and she took her life. Um, july uh, 13th you know 2015 but were before you with her at that point like you guys were in a relationship no, we were together yeah we were engaged yeah oh, we man. we were a month from being three years um and you know a lot of her family blames me still to this day but like it's you know and i blamed myself early on because everybody was also openly blaming me like i they didn't want me at the funeral or anything but i mean you know the joke's kind of on them because she would always tell me she didn't want me at the funeral because she yeah. would always be planning her death because when you're suicidal, you plan your death openly to the person that you trust. Like, I knew what songs that she wanted to play at the funeral and everything. I had to give a list to them. So, but even before that, like, I was doing crazy shit. Like, I kept going back and forth to Massachusetts to try to hide. And, like, to the point where I was already doctor shopping now, I started doctor shopping around 2012 where I would go to the shady doctor and you know, they're shady when you have to have a referral from another patient, not from another doctor. Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it wasn't like this doctor referred me. It was like this patient referred me and like, okay, you're going to be cool then. And you know, they only took cash, you know, and like, all right, well, what do you want? It's like, what do I want? They're like, yeah, what do you want? I'm like 120, you know, oxy thirties and 120 Xanax. And they're like, all right, here you go. See you next month. Oh, man. It was that easy. So, you this know. This was, what, 2009, 2010? Um, I got my first script in September or August. It might have even been June. It was the summer 2012. Okay. And at that time, you are with this this, this woman. Colleen and I That's... started dating in August 2012. And I think I started getting my script in July of 2012. Okay. But, so you guys were together for a little over a year before... Oh no, we we had just started dating basically. We had oh, just I mean, before she she passed away. Oh, we we were three years. Three years, okay. Yeah. Um, and in that three years, like I even kept running away. Like the one time I went to Massachusetts, it was um 2014 in June and or even May, but like I had to come back to go to doc my doctor's, you know, my, where I was doctor shopping, yeah. and I lit and I didn't have a car. My car was repoed at this point. Um, so I would literally have to take a bus from where I lived in New Bedford, 45 minutes up to Boston, and then transfer buses to Boston to go to New York City, and then walk about a mile to do another transfer to take me down to Philly. And then once I got to Philly, my buddy picked me up, and we went over to, you know, my doctors, got the scripts, and I went over and filled it. Well, at this time, I didn't know it, but we were being followed. Um, I owed somebody a lot of money and like this dude was like the kind of dealer that didn't do drugs like he was serious you know okay so he had were, like two were you so were you working at this point or this was just um I you was, were just now what's that what did you say there uh, yeah, were, were you, you working at the or were you now just strictly dealing and, and and doing the drugs and you weren't working anymore you didn't have any of that stability is that where you're at right now yeah yeah okay yeah because like a previous dealer that you had crossed in some way 
Yeah, because like when I was getting the scripts, you know, I would run through them really fast, you know, because I was an addict. And then I would need like to get by and and I'd be like, hey, man, can you front me and then I'll pay you back, like front me this many and I'll give you double back. Like if you give me 10 today, I'll give you 20 back when I get my script and that kind of thing. And so he, you know, wanted his money or his pills, you know, because I owed it to him. But like I wasn't going to give them to him because I'd given him a lot in the past and I didn't live there anymore. So I figured I'd just like skirt by and get out of town after one day. But I forgot because I was a drug addict that he knew what my appointments were and he knew where my doctors were like and just followed me over there. And again, just like followed us to the pharmacy, followed us to my friend's house. And like he knew my friend and he just walked up on the house and started like, hey, I know he's in here. And I had to, you know, sneak out the one of the windows to run around the side, call a cab because Uber didn't exist, call a cab to pick me up and take me over to the train station in Philly and where I hopped on the next bus to New York, which I wasn't planning on any of this. I was high out of my mind. I hopped on the next bus in New York City. It was pouring rain in New York. I was I might have been on like eight bars and like eight thirties. I was so ripped walking through the city in the pouring rain not a care in the world though because i got eight, out of there eight bars what do you mean what's that eight xanax oh eight shit. Xanax. Okay. yeah i was high dude i was off my ass and okay. i finally get back up to boston have to get i didn't get my my whole entire trip was like a 28 hour trip from like start to finish like with that whole thing that happened in between and like i had already been arrested for you know xanax in 2012 as a uh, possession charger 2013 i'm sorry it was 2013 and no it wasn't it was because of xanax not with xanax so gotcha. i'll explain like xanax makes me steal and i don't know why and i've talked to a lot of people on this podcast and they said the same thing that made me feel a lot better xanax made them steal so this one time i, I was I, I, I lit xanax once it didn't make me steal but i ended up in the drunk tank doing some weird like native Black chanting out. and like banging my head against the wall and i tried to escape using like a clip off my pants and i i mean i'd done some weird shit drinking but xanax made me go real 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 weird so yeah maybe i, I would have stolen if i wasn't in the drunk tank i don't know <laughs> yeah yeah they caught you before you had the chance yeah because like this one time i was house sitting for my old manager like him and i were close i house sat for him all the time um, whenever he would go away, you know, it was often they went on vacation. I would watch his dogs and it was no big deal. And I was always really respectful, but I was on Xanax this one time and I, I don't remember any of this. I've tried to apologize in, a million times, you know, I paid back in restitution, done all that stuff. But while I was high on Xanax, I blacked out. I stole a bunch of his wife's jewelry and pawned it. Uh-huh. And like, I, you know, I was a pretty smart criminal but like i was dumb as shit on xanax because i went to the closest pawn shop possible you know where they're gonna yeah. check first like i was you know obviously i was high out of my mind i got into a car accident that day driving back from there because i was high and i couldn't stop fast enough because xanax again yeah um you say like, that you're a pretty smart criminal so i mean outside of dealing drugs were you doing other criminal activities yeah i was doing payday loan scams like okay. you know what a payday loan is yeah. Yeah. So like at one point I was working for this retailer, not Best Buy, but like one of their competitors, not even Circuit City. But like I went there for like a couple months because they were commissioned. I was like, I'll make more money. And 
I was so high on pills at that time. And I walked in and they were like, hey, can you take a ride with me? I'm like, yeah, it's fine. And then we get in the car and like, we're taking you for a drug test. I'm like, okay, cool. And in my head, I'm like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> like, usually I use my brother's piss to pass drug tests because they knew I smoked weed and he didn't. So I always use my brother's piss to pass tests. But this time I didn't have anybody's piss. I had to piss on my own. Yeah. And so whenever you do one with a job like that, it takes like three or five days to get results. So and I knew I was going to be suspended until results came back and I knew I was going to be fired when they came back. Yeah. So so they knew they had to. I've never worked at a place where they're like, surprise, we're driving to a drug test right now. Oh, they knew. I was was ripped, bro. I was I, I was not a good person. I was so high. My pupils were probably make you a bad person, but I get what you're saying. My pupils were probably like this big, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I'm not even surprised. So, but when I got back, I was like, all right, what am I gonna do? I was like, oh, I have a job right now still. So let me do a payday loan. So I never done one before and I applied for this payday loan. And so the first company calls right away in like 10 minutes. They're like, Yep, you're approved for three hundred dollars because they called my employer. They said, Yeah, he's employed. Nothing about any of that, because that's all like done at the store level. This was HR, some random person. Like, yep, he's employed right yeah, now. Yeah, sure, sure. So, and then they were like, all right, 300 will be in your account tomorrow. I said, okay, cool. And in my head, I'm like, I'm going to shut that account once I get the money. And because I knew they told me on the phone that if you lose your job suddenly, then you won't have to pay it back. You won't be held liable for it. And I knew I was losing my job suddenly. So I knew that's got to have changed by now. I'm sure. I'm sure it has. I'm (laughs) sure it has. This was, like I said, 10 years ago. Yeah. And um, but then I hung up and then another company called. And then I realized that they're not talking to each other. Oh, of course not. Yeah. And I realized, oh, shit, I can just say yes to as many companies that are going to call me because I'm not paying them back anyway. Like most people are going to say, no, thanks. I already got it because I know it's going to pay it back. I had no intentions of paying them back. Yeah. So I collected three grand in 10 different companies. And then when I worked at a bank, I knew I was losing my job again because of latenesses, because of being high and selling drugs and coming in late because I was putting a priority over meeting people to sell pills over going to work. Yeah. So again, I knew I was losing my job. So again, I did a payday loan. I did like, I did that like three or four different times to gotcha. like get three grand at a time. And so they, you're they you're like money. basically white crawler criminal stuff. You weren't like yeah. robbing robbing folks. Yeah. You weren't breaking B and E's or any of that kind of stuff. You weren't like no, beating people up for money or whatever. You were no, not saying it's a victimless money. crime, but still you weren't like Yeah. They're 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 so dumb about it. They're like they call me to this day and they're like, you know, if you don't call us back by five PM, we're sending a sheriff out to arrest you and have a cert and have a warrant for your arrest. And they've been saying that for years, number one. But number two <laughs> I've gotten arrested in my house before. When that happened, when I stole that stuff, they yeah. came to my house to arrest me. So, like, they never called in advance to make sure I was going to be there to arrest me. Like, you're not calling me in advance to tell me I'm going to get arrested if I don't pay a fine. Right. Like, stop. I know you're lying now. And actually, when they did arrest me, I had to go being cuffed up for 45 minutes back to their precinct because that was that far away from them. This is for this is for yeah. the first yeah. Yeah, that first one with the jewelry. Yeah. When they okay. showed up, when they showed up at my house, it was like one in the afternoon, and I lived 45 minutes away from where that happened, so I had to sit in that cop car, cuffed up behind my hands on my back for 45 minutes till we got to the police station. 
That, hey, so that, that jewelry must have been pretty expensive if you were getting hemmed up that quick. Usually petty theft doesn't... $4,300 is what I had to pay oh, back. That's pretty expensive, yeah. Um, but How it long did you do for that? Six months probation. It would, oh. have been, it would have been a year, but I got done my restitution really fast, paying my fines, and I got done my community service really fast. So, and since I wasn't being drug tested every month for probation, yeah. because it wasn't drug related, it was theft. So they didn't want to have me come back every month and waste a seat that somebody else needs that needs to be drug tested. Gotcha. So they just took me off after six months. And um, I mean, I didn't learn my lesson. I was still getting high because I had sure. prescriptions. Even if they drug tested me, I would have been like, here's my bottle. I'm allowed to take these. Yeah. You know, so it was fucked either way. I didn't smoke weed the entire time because I knew that I didn't have a prescription for that. So the irony of, you know, that I couldn't use something that would have been helpful to me as opposed to I was just sticking with the drugs that got me into that mess. Right, right. You know, <laughs> I never so, lost weed. It was just an innocent bystander always. So then you, you're, you're uh, to move back to where we were a few minutes ago, you, you're now getting arrested again, right? Because you said you were... About to I, get arrested? They, they were threatening me with it, but they never got me on it. I, I did get, um, did I get arrested again? I'm trying to think. Um, <laughs> Most yeah, I, did, I did, I did, I did. I'll get there. I'll, I'll jump ahead. Um, so when Colleen passed away, I moved to North Carolina. Well, let's, um, I mean, let's, I guess let's talk about that. If the arrest came after, cause like that, that's a very significant, this is the first and only real relationship you feel like that. I feel like you've, you've talked about. And she ended up taking her own life. What did that, what did that, I mean, and you had all these people now coming at you saying that you were, to, you were to blame and what was, what was happening to your addiction and your, your situation at that point? So I, I had decided my brother and I were moving to North Carolina and this was July 9th that we were moving down there and she was supposed to come in a month. She needed gotcha. time to like find a therapist down there and all that because of bipolar and she was going to move down. That was what we talked about. And um, <clears throat> she was calling me yelling as I was driving down there. Um, she was having an episode and that was, that happened often, man. And, um, you know, I got really good at catching her wrists when she would swing, you know, and bringing them in because she was have episodes and start swinging. Um, but this was on the phone, and I'm driving in a U-Haul in North Carolina, no lights on the highway, and it's pouring rain. So, like, I'm not answering. And then I don't hear from her Friday as I'm moving all my shit in. I don't hear from her Saturday as I'm moving all my shit in. Um, then Sunday comes around, and that night I thought of her three different times because one of her favorite songs played three different times in three different places. Like, I heard it on the radio, and then I heard it, like, on Family Guy. And then, like, I heard it on, like, Pandora. It was, like, really random. So I texted her, hey, thinking of you, like, please let me know if you're okay. And then she never answered me. You know, and four in the afternoon, her mom called me to say she took her life. Oh, man. Um, turns out she was on a 72-hour hold. After she screamed at me and had the episode Thursday night, she was committed that next day and put on a 72-hour hold. But unfortunately, her parents signed her out after 48 hours, and she took her life that night. Oh, man. Um, but what I felt was a lot of remorse and a lot of resentment and a lot of anger, um, a lot of anger towards a lot of people, not just myself, because like I had a lot of her friends that she was childhood friends with growing up that hadn't really been around her for the last few years 
because you know they didn't know how to handle somebody that was bipolar schizophrenic yeah so they just wouldn't call her back and hang out you know a few of them tried if i'll give them credit a few of them did try here and there to like spend time with her but like then they had all this guilt so now they're all contacting me like what happened i'm like what happened is you stop fucking talking to her like stop don't ask me i don't want to talk about it like i got really bad dude i started drinking heavily again because like i was in north carolina i couldn't get pills you know yeah. the only time i can get pills is when i would pay somebody western union and they would mail them overnight to me but besides that like i was at the bar six nights a week spending 200 bucks a day at the bar like i had a seat ready for me and everything every day that they would hold up for me like I was just drowning for a solid year down in North Carolina. And then we came back to Massachusetts, Pennsylvania for work. We ended up starting a Roto-Rooter franchise with our dad up in Massachusetts. This is you and your, your brother. You can yeah. live, so you were living with your brother during this year. Yeah, and he was being supportive. You know, he was worried about my drinking, but he was also knew, knowing that I was hurting really bad because Colleen was gone. Yeah. So, you know. So uh, in a way, he was kind of co-signing that. Yeah, he was, you know, he was really concerned, man. He, you know, my brother's a warrior and he was just, he didn't know what to do, honestly. And he would tell me like, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Just if you need anything, please tell me, you know, he was just worried that I was going to hurt myself, I think. And so he was okay with me drinking as long as I wasn't going to like take my own life. You know, that's what he was really worried about, I think. And which was, you know, valid. I wasn't at that point yet, but I was getting there. And um, because when we came back to Pennsylvania this time and started this business, I was then two hours from like the homeland of pills for me. Yeah. And I started realizing that two hours of a drive isn't that far of a drive there and back to do a couple times a week. So, you know, four or five times a week, I would drive the Jersey, pick up pills and drive back. I'm like, I'm going for a ride and then just drive the Jersey, grab some and come back. And I started doing that like, a lot for three years. Um, I got arrested towards the end. I was I wasn't seeing my usual dealer. I had I had a usual guy, but like there were some times when like he was busy at work, like he did like towing, so like I couldn't always see him. Um, and this one time I had to see somebody else that was like local in my old town. So I went there and like I'm pretty sure to this day he set me up because he always let me do a couple off of his counter. And this one time specifically, he was like, no, you got to just leave. You can't do any. <laughs> and so I left and I'm driving to my other buddies. And I have 20 of them on me, but that's like about average of what I would buy for myself for stock. I was doing stand up comedy at the time and I had a show that night. So I needed to have them for my show and needed. I wanted to have them for my show. Yeah. And I, um, well, you're, you, I got, you said you're still using this as kind of a social lubricant. So it's just a part of your like routine, right? Like even when you're going to a party or now just doing shows. There's, there's like a, I, I had the same kind of routines. Like I, I had to pregame at some points because I had to make sure if I was going straight into a party that I was late for, that I needed a couple to kind of loosen everything up. And it sounds like this is just kind of built into you now, like this. this yeah, uh, I, and and I was still owning the fact that I was an addict, dude. When I would get on stage and I knew that nobody I knew was in the crowd, like you know, say like friends or family wasn't there to see me perform. Yeah. I would get up there and I would start out like, hey, I'm JD and I'm an alcohol or I'm an addict. Oh, shit, it's the wrong night. I'm at the wrong place. Sorry. Like, you know, like I was owning it. That was my way to vent. That was the first time I started really like venting about, you know, how broken I was 
was on stage in front of strangers where I could feel open to talk about my problems in front of people that don't know me, know me and know my history. But even then you still needed the pills to even get Oh, I needed the pills and I had the drink on the stool, you know what I mean? Double Jack and Coke, good to go. Like I would do a couple shots beforehand too. I would never be slurring my words because I would record my shit to listen to after to kind of critique myself and like build off my sets. Yeah. And um, I've deleted like all of them now because I could tell how high I was. That's the difference. I could tell, you know, but nobody, yeah. else, you know, but um, yeah, so I'm driving and through my old town, you know, through where I went to school and everything. And the cop pulls me over in the school zone. And turns out he had been following me and watched me leave that dude's house because he had been watching that house. So he watched me do a buy. He watched me get in my car and then oh. he waited for me to get into a school zone, then pulled me over. Oh, he, he, that, <clears throat> so he didn't, that, the dealer didn't tell on you. He wanted you to tell on the dealer. Well, I think that they had already caught the dealer and they wanted more people. You know what Maybe, I mean? Like yeah. they were because they were watching the dealer like and that dude is in jail right now and not even for dealing just some other crazy shit because he ended up getting bad on heroin gotcha. um, from what I'm told or whatever. I don't know. Either way, he, he did some fucked up shit. And now he's in jail. You know? So he waited until you were in a school zone to specifically catch you with. with oh, yeah, he, he was he when he he pulled me out of the car, he didn't pull me out. He asked me to get out. I'm like, yeah, it's fine. You can search my car. Like, good luck. Because, like, the back seat of my car, you know, I was an addict, so there's trash. It's all, like, fucking Wawa, empty, like, iced teas, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. empty McDonald's cups and shit, like, all throughout my back seat. You know, I spent hours all the time in parking lots waiting for my dealers, you know what I mean? So, like, McDonald's is, I, I used to always say I heisted their straws. I would go in to use their bathroom and grab a handful of straws and put them in my center console. So I always <laughs> had straws ready to go. And, um... So when he pulled me over and I was like, you know, listen, I got weed in my center console. You know, I, I wasn't, you know, on medical marijuana yet, um, but I straight up said, like, I have weed in my center console. And he's like, OK, thanks for the heads up. And like now I'm standing with the other cop. Right. Because they have to, like, have one cop watch you while the other cop searches. Yeah. And um, my it was like March. So I had a hoodie on and my sleeves started falling like I had them rolled up like my sleeves. Yeah. And I had the pills in my elbow in the sleeve and they were in a bag. So when my when my thing fell, my, you know, he was like, oh, and he started going like that to fix it for me. And that's when he felt the baggie and pulled it out of my sleeve like a fucking magician. He's like, oh, found <laughs> it. This is what we we're looking for. You know, they didn't even give a shit about the weed. You know, this is what we're yeah. looking for in a bag of 20. This is this is intent to distribute in the school zone. Do you know that? I'm like, well, you pulled me over in the school zone. I wasn't going to the school zone. And all 20 of them are mine because I have a fucking problem and I need all 20 of them. Like, you know. Yeah. And I, you know, I talked my way out of it. Not not talking my way out of it. They arrested me. I went to jail. It was a block away. It wasn't a far ride. This one wasn't a far ride. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, and honestly, yeah, I fucking ratted him out. Like, because you know, I don't care. And I'll even open, he's in jail right now. And everybody else knows that anyway. But like, I was like, yeah, that's where I was getting them is from him. And they're like, okay, well, can you do more buys? And I'm like, we'll have to talk about that. Can you get me out of here? Because like, it's almost three o'clock and he's going to pick it up his kids from school soon in this parking lot. And they're like, oh shit. Yeah, we'll get you out of here. And then I end up not even doing the buys, 
you know what I mean? I got out of yeah. there. They got, they got my car out of the impound, and I didn't have to even do the buys. So I got out of that. I ended up going to court for that months later. We'll talk about it. But when I'm so, such an asshole that, like, I left there and went straight back to that dude's house to buy 10 more. <laughs> because I knew that they weren't watching him at that point. They were doing my paperwork, yeah. you know, and I needed to get high because I didn't get a chance to do them yet. And this time he let me do them off his counter, which is funny, you know, because yeah. like I said, he didn't earlier. Um, but it, that didn't even get me sober. It was a month. It was like three weeks later, dude. And it was 420 of 2018. And I was watching a documentary called Legend of 420 on Netflix. And I'm just smoking and I'm and I'm doing pills as usual. Like and um <clears throat> They talked about this place called High Sobriety in L.A., a sober living that, you know, teaches you how to use cannabis as a medicine. And literally for the first time in a decade, I'm like, well, that's a rehab I would actually do, you know. And then the next day, I just had one of those really bad days. Like my dog and I drove to Jersey and we sat in McDonald's parking lot for like six hours. And finally, I was able to find somebody. And that person like wanted one just for buying them and then like. I end up doing two right away and I'm driving back home. I'm like with one I'm like, what am I doing? Like, this is like ridiculous. Eight that o'clock. moment of clarity that everybody yeah. talks about. And then like, I, I was like, I Googled the number, you know, for high sobriety, eight o'clock at night. I was like, well, let's see if he answers at five o'clock on a Saturday night. And luckily for me, he answered because I'm pretty sure if he didn't, I would have given up. But, you know, he answered and we talked for like two hours. And I was on a flight three days later. Um, and once I got there, I was I was ready, man. Like I got I got there and I sat down for IOP. Like, you know, but the group meetings that you have in rehabs, like not IOP, you're not going out yet. But like I got there, I did my check in, and then like they were doing a group outside because it's LA. Yeah, and, I, I what is IOP? I have not done rehab. Oh, IOP is um, outpatient. It's like intensive outpatient. Intensive outpatient. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, that's when you go to meetings like once a day and, you know, you sit around and do the group therapy. Um, But when you're in rehab, you do those kind of meetings inside the facility. And then when you're in sober living, you go out to them. So I was right away in like I was smoking a cigarette. I didn't have to. You don't have to do the groups for the first three days because you're detoxing. You don't have to. But like. I liked what everybody was saying. And I was like, I was relating in already, if that makes sense. I was already like, oh, that sounds like me. That's like kind of like, and then like, I never missed a group meeting. I ended up loving the groups. I got a lot out of them. I ended up loving therapy. You know, I said to my therapist. So you were fully open to the process when you went. Oh, yeah. It wasn't a situation where you were like judging everybody. You're like, well, I didn't get that bad. you, You were ready, ready. I knew yeah, I knew I was at, like, my end. Like, I had quit drinking for six months before I went to rehab, actually. So you, up until this point, though, you hadn't really had any experiences with rehab or with AA meetings or with recovery at all outside of... I went one- to one AA meeting and one NA meeting with Colleen when she was alive. You know, our parents were making us go to a meeting. And we went to one AA meeting for her and one NA meeting for me. And, you know, the entire time, I couldn't even tell you what was said. I was relating out the entire time. You know, I wanted to relate out, you know what I mean? So, yeah, I wasn't even paying attention. But this time, like, 
now I'm in rehab. And the only time you can leave rehab is when you go to a meeting outside the house. And they would take us to meetings at noon and eight o'clock at night. And those were the meetings that like, I really started like, it took like two weeks. And then I heard a speaker talk and he said a lot of things that reminded me of my story. And then like, you know, it's like custom to thank the speaker afterwards. So like, yeah. I'm, thank, I'm thanking him. He gives me his number. We end up becoming friends. We're still friends to this day. Um, and he nice. ended up becoming really instrumental for me at like late night meetings when I would go on my own. Um, and then I was, I, I had my first like awakening, like spiritual awakening. And I was sitting in an NA meeting in Santa Monica <clears throat> at this place called Jocelyn Park. It's one of the biggest NA meetings in Santa Monica, if not the biggest NA meeting every week on Thursday nights. And amazing, amazing sobriety there, dude. Amazing. Cleanliness, whatever the fuck you want to call it. Um, and I'm sitting there, and the speaker that night is from Philly. She's schizophrenic. She's an al- alcoholic. She's bipolar. She oh, even man. she even sounds like Colleen because of the accents. You know what I mean? And she was talking about drinking until the voices went away, hiding in closets. And that these are all things that Colleen did. Oh. And I, you know... <clears throat> And she kept saying, like, if you're sitting in this room, it's because you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be sitting here. We want you here. You need to be here. This is what's best for you right now. And I just started, like, breaking down. Like, I was crying in my seat because, like, I felt like that was Colleen speaking to me. I felt like, you know, that was her saying, this is where I need to be. I need to do this. and I need to do it right. And the next day I asked for another therapist. I was like, I need another therapist. I want to do this even more. So I had, you know, my sponsor, I got a sponsor within two days after that. So I had a sponsor and I had two therapists at this point. And then I got a, then I got a third therapist because I want to talk about relationships with somebody. Because I never, like you said, you called it out. I never really had relationships. Yeah, it's not part of your story. Like, like mine is, you know, that's what, that was yeah. my other addiction is getting into relationships. Yep. And I didn't know how to be in a relationship sober. You know, I didn't know that. So that was a big thing that we touched on. We touched on, I I didn't feel heard. You know, I was part of a friend group that was like seven of us since first grade. And I always felt like they didn't listen to me. You know what I mean? Like, and if I did talk, I wasn't feeling respected. I'm not really friends with any of them anymore. Um, Maybe a couple that were acquaintances and we talk here and there, but like some have died, you know, and some I'm still good friends with. Um, and because grief is a part of my story, we've lost so many people, you know, from our high school that like, it's crazy, man. That's why I was constantly, you know, getting high. Yeah. And, um, so yeah, when I would just like, uh, where, where was I? Uh, you uh, just heard from the, the person that reminded you of Colleen. Yeah. And you just got like doubled down on the therapy. You're, you're now all in on, on yeah. recovery and sobriety. Yeah, because I wasn't feeling heard. That's what it was. Um, And I never really felt heard. And I would get frustrated if I was trying to explain something to somebody and they weren't listening or they weren't respecting what I was saying. Because, like, I'm fucking smart. Listen, like, this is my ego. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. This is my ego addiction. Like, I'm fucking smart. Why aren't you listening to me? I know I know what I'm talking about. You like I'm giving you sage advice. This is is important because I'm saying it. And you yeah. need to take that into consideration. And then when they wouldn't <laughs> listen, you know, or respect it, I would just take it out of myself and get high over it. Sure. So that was a big trigger for me. And it, you know, it's still kind of, it's not a trigger to this day, but I was triggered recently with it actually in sobriety. 
And not that I wanted to get high over it. I was just frustrated. Yeah. And that frustration came back and I was like, oh, I got to calm down. Um, but I was. So this fooling. is the first time that you're actually starting to feel like you're being heard. Oh, yeah. People can understand your story and you have a place. So within 30 days, uh, I was getting a 30 day chip at a meeting that I was speaking at as the lead speaker. Nice. Because I was talking so much at meetings and sharing every single day about how I was feeling. And so just like I was so vulnerable and I was so just like I didn't know anybody in L.A. I didn't know shit. So I felt so comfortable to finally just be like this is who I am. This is what's on my mind. Because I felt like nobody was going to tell me to shut up. You're fucking dumb. Or, you know, call me the F word, you yeah. know, and I, I can't fucking stand that word. Um, obviously, I don't mean fuck when I say the F word. And but that's what I would be called for. And, I'm, you know, I completely support LGBTQ. We have meetings for the community here. And so it's not like I was offended by it. I just hated that word so much. Yeah. You know, I'm offended for the community that you would even say that. <clears throat> so anyway, um, I just I never felt comfortable even opening up. So now I did. And now I'm just like fucking word vomit all the yeah, time. The faucets open. Yeah. And now so some now people were time were like, hey, do you just want to speak at a meeting and tell your story? You're going to feel a lot better. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? Thirty days, I can talk recovery. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> <It was all laughs> just... <laughs> I, uh, I, I get that yeah, for sure. <laughs> I just I know I know everything about this now. Yeah, and it dude, it was amazing. I loved AA in California. I loved everybody that I met. Like I know you watch my shows and watch other episodes, like yeah. and I have a bunch of people on here um that I met through AA out there that are still part of my recovery network. There's still people I hit up to this day with problems. I do fit steps with all these people all the time. Cause whenever nice. I catch a resentment, I'm calling somebody, you know. And um it doesn't have to be your sponsor. But I did my steps really quickly. I was into it, dude. Like, I wanted to do it. I couldn't wait to do it four and five. And I couldn't wait to start apologizing and lose not all my character defects, but a lot of them I was working on. Um, But, you know, I came back and I felt amazing. You know, I came back at four months, the PA to work. I got right back into work with my dad and brother. I was doing good. And, you know, I uh, going to meetings. I was going to two meetings a day around PA. I was driving an hour to one meeting three, two, twice a week. Like I found a meeting an hour away yeah, and I set myself to it twice a week because I would drive that far to get high. Yeah. So I'm going to drive that far to stay sober. That was like what I was thinking. And that meeting was awesome. I loved it. I met some really cool people that I'm still friends with. Um, well, one person I'm still friends with. And, but I, and I started dating around this time, like, but I wasn't going to get serious. You know, it was just like, I'm going to try dating for the first time in my life now, because like you pointed out, I wasn't dating, you know, yeah. it wasn't a thing for me. I would just, I hopped into that one relationship and that was it. So exa- I was, you know, what people wanted to see on Tinder and Bumble, like, oh, newly sober. Oh, his only yeah. real relationship lost to suicide. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're real right. fucking yeah. maybe, maybe you don't want to lead with that on your Tinder profile. Oh, yeah. no, I, I did, though. I did. <laughs> I, I wanted to cut it out right off the bat like you're gonna yeah. know what you're getting into because i'm not gonna waste my time like honestly yeah. my profile said you know i'm in recovery i don't care if you drink i'm just not going to um i'm 420 friendly because i was using cannabis in my recovery 
Um, and don't worry, I'm not going to send you unsolicited dick pics because I think that's gross. And plus, I'm average at best. And that's like getting a C and putting on a refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs> and that was my bio. That so, was my... <laughs> so you use cannabis in your recovery. And this was learned in L.A. Tell me more about that. I know you've, you've touched on it in other episodes and it's it kind of has led. That seems like of anything in your recovery journey, that seems to be the biggest part that has shaped where you're at now with the community centers and feeling like you need to open up these other areas yeah. for people to be sober at. So what was yeah. the, the, you moved to LA, you know, to backtrack a little bit to get sober and that high sobriety, that was your introduction to using cannabis as a way to, to yep. abstain from these other things. At high sobriety, I had a doctor that I saw, um, I think it was like once every week or once every two weeks. And we talked about the medicines, how they're working. We weren't allowed to smoke. Um, yeah. we use tinctures, tinctures, you know, the droplets that you drop in your mouth, Okay. we use those tinctures and then we would use an edible at night. Like these, I are, would these are THC tinctures yeah. and edibles. Okay. Yep. Yeah. THC. The tincture was THC CBD and I would use that in the morning and afternoon. And at nighttime when I would be done my meetings, I would eat like 10 milligrams of a chocolate bar, um, a Kiva bar, and I would sleep like a baby. And um, the other reason I was sleeping like a baby is because I was going to late night meetings at 11 p.m. seven days a week. I fell in love with late night. I would yeah. go there at 11 o'clock every night and there wasn't it wasn't filled with other um, rehabs at those meetings. It was people that were living in just being sober that were going there and they were all like my age. It's a different so I, it's a totally different crowd of people. Yeah, totally. like, you know, that girl yeah. Devin that was on a few weeks ago, like, that's where I met her was at late night. You know, I met a lot of, I met my sponsor yeah. at late night. I met a lot of amazing people there. You, and, go to, you go to late night meetings because you either have a job that makes it so that that's where you end up going, or you don't feel like you fit in at regular meetings. That's what I've always kind of learned is. For is, me, it was, I had such trouble sleeping at night with my head that the late night meeting was a way for me to reset my day every day at 11 o'clock at night. Oh, and gotcha. I would come okay. home with a clean palate and then take my Kiva bar and pass out. Nice. And I'd wake up and I would go to IOP, I would go to the gym, all that shit, and then start hitting meetings again. I was going to, I did 250 and 90. You know, they say do 90 and 90, I did 250. Yeah. There was one weekend, a Saturday and Sunday, I did 20 meetings. I, and I in those other meetings, what was your experience with sharing that you were cannabis friendly? I was really open about it. I was open about it with my sponsor. I was open about it with anybody that wanted to hear me talk about it because it yeah. was so new. And in California, I can't imagine that went over well. In LA, it did. Weird. Okay. In LA, they're like, "Hey, man, as long as you're not losing control and your life's not unmanageable and you're sticking to what the doctor says, more power to you. I just can't yeah. do it." And I got that a lot. You yeah. know, and, and that should be the answer. Yeah, but it's not 1930. We're not stuck in the uh, reefer madness era where <laughs> conservative <laughs> we're PA, that. Yeah. Yeah. Conservative so PA, PA. Yeah. they're like, don't say pills, say alcohol. You shouldn't be sharing because you use cannabis. And, it's, and it wasn't just me. There was somebody that, you know, used methadone and they weren't supposed to share either because they use methadone. Oh, man. You know, like you they know, weren't letting him share. Oh, so you were going to close meetings. Yeah. Yeah, and I couldn't share. And if I did, like, I felt like I was being, like, looked at and ostracized. Like, you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. don't, don't listen to him. He, he uses weed. Yeah. It's like, you guys wouldn't even know that I used it if I wasn't so open about it. Yeah, it's I not like I'm smoking a fucking joint. Yeah, it's not like I'm smoking a joint in a parking lot 
flicking it at you and walking in. Like, right. come on. Like, I just told you that I use capsules and I use tinctures and stuff like that because there's no edibles in PA, so I use the capsules. So, like, yeah. I'm, I'm micro-dosing just because my brain operates better. I can think a lot more clear and a lot, I can break down things easier. I can compartmentalize better when it's running through my system. And yeah, I but if you said that, that you were prescribed Adderall because you're ADHD, people are like, okay, that's cool. You can talk yeah, about that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Tell us about your Vivant. So don't talk about weed because weed's bad. Yeah. yeah. There's people that, you know, they have anxiety and they take Ativan. They take yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, get the fuck out of here. You're going to, yeah. you know, put me up on the pedestal. So, you know, after at a year sober, I went back to L.A. to visit all my people. I wanted to get chips in L.A. from the people that, you know, it got me started. So I flew out there and I did that whole thing. What, year, I, what year is this? Um, April 2018 is when I got sober. And this was I met my now wife three weeks before I my one year. Her and I met on Tinder like anybody else I was meeting. She yeah. had just got out of a nine-year relationship, and then she had a kid, and you know, and was married, and was getting divorced, and like she wasn't trying to be serious. I wasn't trying to be serious because I was still in early in sobriety, and I told her that. She's like, "Oh, my dad's got 29 years. I know all about AA. That's fine." Um, she's like, "I'm still kind of an alcoholic though, but like I'm working on it." I'm like, "Okay, that's fine. I can deal with that." And you know, when I came back from my one year, I proposed. You know, and we've been, you know together ever since well i mean we said i love you the first night we met at the same time so like we knew it was one of those things where i hadn't felt that feeling again yeah you know and i felt it right away with her like i did with colleen and i knew and everybody else i had dated there was probably like 20 other girls i dated before her but like there was one girl i remember i left her house and i'm driving back and i'm like i'm never gonna have that fucking feeling again man like i really felt that like i'm never gonna have that feeling again and I did eventually, and Mikey's amazing, and Mikey and I started this together, and um, she just celebrated 18 months sober um, a few weeks ago, most, most times she's ever had. Um, I'll cut to that. So, so 13 months into me being clean and sober, I'm not even in the program anymore in Pennsylvania. Like, they wouldn't even give me a one-year chip. You know, they were begrudgingly, like, about it and shit because yeah. of, like, cannabis so I said, fuck it. I bought a six pack of twisted tea on a Saturday night and it was just me by myself. I poured the first two out, you know, because anybody in AA knows like we can't pour them out. So I poured the first two out and then I drank the other four. And um, that I didn't drink alcoholically, but I did drink for like nine months, like pool parties, barbecues, going to see some stand up at a concert a couple yeah. times. Like, you know what I mean? And, you know, holidays or whatever and then like i woke up on february 29th leap day of 2020 like two weeks before covid really like shut down it was leap day that year and i woke up hungover for the first time and i realized i drank a bottle of jack the night before oh man and i said to my wife i'm like i'm done like baby i can't do this anymore like, you have a flashback to your first time blacking out yeah i was like i don't want to be hungover this was yeah. i don't i can't be hungover i gotta stop and she's like, well, I'll quit with you. We'll do it together. And so, yeah, I haven't had a drink in over 18 months. My recovery date to me is still 425-18. I can say whatever date I want. It's my date, you yeah. know, and my life wasn't unmanageable. I didn't get DUIs. I wasn't reckless. And I'm very open about it. Um, I needed that nine months to quit, I think, because I didn't quit because I wanted to quit the first time. I quit because I was going to AA for pills. 
This yeah. time I'm quitting alcohol because I don't want it anymore. So it meant more to me. So me hitting 18 months alcohol free is the longest I've ever gone to. Be... And, and within like a couple of weeks, I said to her, like, I miss meetings. Like within a week of quitting alcohol, I'm like, I miss meetings. She goes, well, I don't really like AA. And I'm like, yeah, neither do I. Like, I'm still using cannabis. I'm like, I wish we had our own. And that's kind of like the birth of like this place, the meeting center. But, you know, COVID shut down everything. And so we spent a year just like planning what we would do, you know, where we would go, looking at places that were cool in town. <clears throat> and we got this place. It's an old building, dude. Um, 1900 to 1983, it was an old newspaper press. Nice. Um, like nice the old space. Dude, the old press is still in the basement and everything That's awesome. like all the old machines are still down there um and we do four or five meetings a day out of here now like we do the mental health check-ins in the morning and at night we yeah. do morning meditations at 10 15 that she runs and then at 6 30 every day is a different type of meeting depending on the day of the week you know whether it's harm reduction whether it's opiate related whether it's cannabis related you know i have a sponsee now that i fucking he's about to hit three months on monday for the first time in 15 years of doing meth, you know, and he was my age when he got sober, 31. So he came in here broken, rehab after rehab, jail after jail. And he's like, oh, you were 31 when you got it? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, and you use medical marijuana in yours? I'm like, yeah, dude. I was like, I can help you. And he's like, let's do it. Yeah, can you like take me through the steps? Like, I know you don't do AA, but could you take me? And I'm like, yeah, that's that's fine. And we use Russell Brand's book we talked about, it, I think, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Was you and I? Yeah. So we're going through that, and we're about to be on four soon for him. Nice. And that's we awesome, know, man. yeah, like we read just for today every day, um, every morning. That's one of the things that we do is read just for today because I like that better than the morning meditation, the Alcoholics Anonymous one. So was that daily meditation or something like that or? What's up? Daily reflections. Daily reflections. Yeah. Daily reflections. I can't stomach that one. I can't yeah. stomach that one. Just for I, today, you know, I, so I, good though. Yeah, I like uh, the Daily Stoic. That's been my my go-to. It's uh. Is that a hard copy, or can I Google it each day? You could probably like, Google it each day. It's a it's a three hundred sixty-six med three hundred sixty-six meditations on wisdom, perseverance, and the art of living, and it's uh it's all different translations of Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius. So it's all the Stoic people. It's not necessary to know anything about Stoic philosophy, but it's all very. I, I appreciate it for myself because it's all very centralized. It's very centered in, in yourself. Like it's finding okay. your own kind of truth. It's kind of the ideal of uh, a very simple way of saying it is, is like the idea of being offended, right? Is you deciding that something affects you yeah. and not, not because this thing is actually bad because everybody's offended by different things and looking at why you're offended and, changing your relationship with what is creating that offense it's kind of that kind of a principle and of course expanded with different things but yeah that That's same cool. sort of internalized like look inside yourself find out what your relationship is because i mean for me as well my relationship with alcohol has changed it's not necessarily that sobriety's brought that about but I've just, I just look at alcohol different. You said, I don't want to be hung over anymore. And that's kind of like the same idea. Like, I just don't want to have that. 
I don't want to have to have that in my life anymore. So that, that yeah. relationship's changed. It's internal that happened now for me. Yeah, so and that way for you too. Yeah, and even I even changed my relationship with cannabis. Like I don't even smoke weed. Like I've smoked in sobriety. Like if I'm yeah. like you know smoke a joint here or there, smoke a blunt or something like that, or a bong or whatever. But like I, I'm not an everyday. Like I don't even think I've really smoked it since like memorial day now that i look back like it's been a minute um i'm more of like i take capsules and microdose and yeah. because that's why it's not instant it takes an hour or two to settle in before you start feeling the effects and you know because i chugged my drinks like we talked about earlier like when i was yeah. chugging that bacardio or i would sniff my pills and not eat my pills so that was instant again yeah so i felt like the more i smoke it's more instant but the more I microdose, it's more of just like me taking medicine and using it more as a medicine and not as something to escape with. I don't want I to think, escape with it. I think it's really important that you're offering this to people. This this other alternative of looking at it, because, yeah, I mean, you go to any meeting, man, and people are going to be hammering caffeine back um, and smoking cigarettes like like it's you know going to be outlawed any minute. And, and you know, cigarettes are they're, they're pretty hardcore stimulant so is caffeine and you know there's there's anxiety reasons that people smoke and there's other things they're trying to medicate with that stuff um but for some reason this aa is still really held on to this old school kind of view of of weed you know and there are people that have an issue with smoking weed and they they do become addicted and that's true but there's also people that don't and it is important for a lot of like you said it helps you regulate how you think it helps you minimize some issues in a medicated way, no different than somebody taking Xanax for, for social anxiety or something like that, but a much healthier alternative. And I'm glad that you're, you're offering this to people. It makes sense that you would have a center that people can come and do whatever they want, essentially, in sobriety. When that's been your story without, with, with pills and alcohol, you've always yeah. been the hub, and that's how you vent your social needs. You, you have people come and go. You're a caregiver. You're a provider of, of that safe place for people to go. And in return, you're cared for. You know, you had friends that would come and break in and clean your house. Not everybody had those experiences when they yeah. had. So you gave people a bond and a connection that was different, even in alcohol and, and pill usage, that now you're giving in a center like that. I think that's a perfect it's, idea. Such a dude, last, last night, like, I know this is Aaron, like, on the 29th on my birthday, but last night was, like, today is, I don't know, the 9th, right? 10th. So last night was the ninth and it was Thursday night and it was LGBTQ night. And, you know, we open it for youth as well because like 70% of youth that are homeless are LGBTQ and the suicide rate is just unbelievable. Um, So we open up for them too. And it's been like, you know, we opened like three months ago and it's been a lot of adults that come, right? But like, there's been like a 12 year old here that comes. And then like all of a sudden another 12 year old will come, but the other one will never be here. And then last night, like, five or six of them came like different, like different ones that never saw each other, but they all came at once on the same night. And they're all like 12 to 14 years old. A bunch of them are transitioning. A bunch of them are just came out of the closet and they were so happy to be there that like, it was myself and our other board member who's part of the community. Um, They're fucking awesome. They just had their name changed recently, officially. Um, And like, we fucking love them. So we asked them to be part of the board because you know, they did such a big thing with the community for yeah. LGBTQ. So I'm sitting there with them and we were just like bawling. We were so happy. Yeah. 
that like we got to see you know these kids find each other and make friends and know they have support within each other and know like they were so happy to see each other and realize they were all the same age and they could be friends and they could like have commonalities and be like you know the people that are looked at together and pointed at together yeah. and they went and they had their own meeting in the other room so the adults could talk and like we were all just like bawling <laughs> we were all just so yeah. happy to see that kind of like camaraderie within the community that like i get choked up even just thinking about it but it was like, seeing that it happen spot. organically seeing the the word get out get seeing seeing people be affected by something that's now positive you know that you created yeah man that's awesome yeah that's it, that's, that's an amazing uh accomplishment you know even if it is just a few kids yeah that's just that's pretty huge man yeah it you know and 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 then like there's people that come here with trauma and they thank me every time just for opening the door each time like yeah. I, you know, I, I've been just like, I feel like I'm menstruating, like I cycle with my wife and it's like, you know, I just so emotional the last couple of days, like I just been bawling, but like, you know, it's just that people are starting to get it. Like they're coming here and they're starting to feel like they're changing and they're getting help, you know, and whether and not even everybody's addicts. I, I talked to a couple addicts, you know, a couple alcoholics. It's mostly mental health, man. It's mostly like trauma. It's mostly depression, yeah. anxiety. And I understand all those things because we are addicts, you know, just because you take away our drugs doesn't mean we didn't have that kind of shit we were dealing with. We were just medicating wrong. Yeah, for sure. And so now that I'm clear minded and I've dealt with all these anxieties in sobriety, I can speak to them of how I get through things now without drugs and alcohol. Oh, uh, I know some people that really like the non-alcoholic beers, the, the zero alcohol beers. And it's like, yeah. I, that's just... It's flirting with disaster that's, for me. I'm fan, it's fantastic that other people like the taste. Like me, sniffing ibuprofen, you know, or like yeah. leave. Just you to kind of take Just, the edge off, yeah. Yeah, and, and, um, and it, it's no, and I tell him every time because he'll he'll offer it to me. It's like no judgment to you, dude, but if I taste beer, I'm going to want beer, and I haven't wanted beer in two years. Like I haven't yeah. wanted to taste it at all. Yeah. But it was never about the taste. <laughs> it was always yeah. about the effect. I yeah. don't like the taste of that shit. But, you know, yeah, some people can do that, and that's what they yeah. need. And that, and that's, you know, that's the part that needs to be explored. That's what I think. So that's why I'm steering her. You know, that's why I'm like, no, you need to check this out because you need to plan your intox days. Because if you're not planning it, you're going to start using it to escape, you know, your trauma. And that's not going to end well for you. You know, yeah. it's already bad enough that you have the trauma that you have. You don't want this to turn into that. And I can just, I'm not trying to be mean, but I see it happening. I see the patterns and she appreciates it and she takes the advice and she, that's what she's been trying to do. That's awesome. So, you know, it's stuff like that, that I like, because you would never see that person in an AA meeting where you can kind of stop it before it happens. You see them after the fact, Yeah. you know, or if you do, they're there for one meeting, they never come back. Yeah. They feel like it's a call or it's weird as fuck. Yeah. 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 So it's been nice to like see people that deal with traumas that, have been trying to medicate and I can kind of give them a heads up. Don't walk down my path. Yeah. And, all I, and all I have to do is tell a story of an example of myself. And then they go, Oh shit, I don't want to be like that. <laughs> you know, and kind of scare them off with one of my war stories. Uh, do you, do you offer anything online for folks? Any online meetings or anything like that? Not yet. Um, just because of the shit people talk about in here. Like, I don't want, you know, people's business like that one, you know what I mean? Yeah. I wouldn't want her online, you know, talking, 
And I just, right now I'm in the middle of doing the 30 media, 30 interviews in 30 days. So like, I don't have extra time to do extra meetings online. Yeah, sir. People, people have asked us about it. Like one of the hospitals our local hospitals, they said, Hey, would you guys, we have a bunch of patients that would like to, you know, do the LGBTQ, but they want to do it online. And like, that's not even a meeting I usually run to begin with. So like, that's up to them if they want to do yeah, that, sure. you know, because I have, my wife has MS. Mikey has MS now. She was diagnosed two months ago. So, yeah, she has MS. So, like, I help her a lot with anything I can. You know, our kid's in second grade, so he needs rides to school, picked up from school, all that. Yeah. And plus, like, I run the morning meetings and the nighttime meetings, and I'm trying to do the pods in the afternoons in between. So, like, I'm going. When I get here yeah. at 8 o'clock in the morning, I'm going until 930 at night. So, you know, seven days a week. <laughs> But I love Not, it. Yeah. I, I love it, man. I wouldn't want to do anything else. So I'm happy as shit to be doing this 90 hours a week. It's the Take best. Take that thing. time for you, man. If, if you're the last person caring for yourself, nobody's going to care for you. So you got to, you know, I know what you're saying because that's your experience with your family. It sounds like your father was a workaholic. Working's always been really important. That's been kind of an identifier. But, you know, just as like a friend to a friend, you know, it's easy to get addicted to something else like that. And they oh, yeah. get burn out, you know. My version of burnout is I, I, you know, I get super hyper focused on something for six months and then I never do it again. Or if I do, I do it again. It's years later, you know. It, that's what's led to me tattooing, and now I'm building gaming PCs because fucking, of course I would, and just you know that kind of thing. But you know, my workaholic friends, you know, when they get burnt out, it's catastrophic, and it and it can be. So you know, make sure you're caring for yourself. It's okay to care for yourself. I'm giving you permission. Yeah, if that I means agree. anything, like we actually, take a we day did. to just fucking relax and 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 know we, that you're not stealing time. Like yeah, and that's what we did when we started to roll out monthly schedules instead of weekly schedules or daily. Yeah. This way, we could kind of plan ahead. Like, okay, you're gonna sleep in on Sundays now. Yeah, like that's what I was told. Like yeah, you're gonna sleep in. Give yourself that on, permission, man. Yeah. Like, so we don't have meetings on Sunday mornings and I can sleep in and relax and nice. you know what I mean? So yeah, I'm, I'm, we're figuring it out. You know, yeah, it's all about good. balance and finding the balance, but like it's recovery month and I love doing this shit and yeah. I want to challenge myself. I saw people doing recovery challenges and my before and afters aren't shocking because like I didn't lose weight in addiction. I was retaining water the entire time with pills. I was like Chris Farley. I was like a fat drug addict, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know what nice. I mean? Yeah. So like my before and afters are like my everything's the same except my face isn't blotchy and I'm not bloated anymore. Right. <laughs> Besides that, like I'm the same weight and all that kind of shit. So like this was my recovery challenge to myself was like I'm gonna put out thirty and thirty. Yeah. You know, see if I can good. do. That's a that's a good challenge, man. Yeah, it's been fun. It's been a lot of different stories, a lot of different stories, and yeah, they've been like I. I had somebody beat me out. Like I did like eight hours of driving a week, you know, to get pills, but her and her husband were driving 22 hours from Ohio to Florida six times a month for five years. So yeah, I was like, all right, you win. Like, yeah. <laughs> you, like I didn't do that. Like I was driving a lot, but holy shit. Yeah. I appreciate you sitting down and talking with me, man. Like, cause yeah. It would have been a lot harder for me if I was just like sitting here and going, yeah, so then this happened. Yep, then this happened. Yeah. Well, and it doesn't fit your format, you know. I, I my, my podcast, at least, I am doing all the episodes alone, so it didn't, it didn't 
you know, it wasn't weird that I was going to, but this makes sense. You'd want to have it this way. And it was fun to, to be on the other side of this, you know, for me yeah. specifically, because I love doing this kind of thing. This is what I'll be leading into is eventually doing guest shots, you know, and I'll have you on my own podcast. We'll probably talk about a lot of this. When I still happens. listen to yours. Yeah. Yours is in my thing that pops up all the time after I listen. Oh, thanks, you know, man. Uh, pops right up and Atheist yeah. reads a big book. If anyone's going to be linked in here as usual, just check that out in the description. And yeah, like, because. Appreciate that. Uh, my fan fell down. Son of a bitch. <laughs> Perfect timing. Yeah, yeah. It's like, all right, hang the fuck up. That's what his fans say, and pick me up. Yeah. Fuck. It's been a long day. I gotta go get uh, my kid, though. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm about to go to Comic-Con. Going oh, really? For a little bit, yeah. Is that what the well, hat's for? Well, this is just every day, but... Every day. <laughs> But, yeah, there's a big Comic-Con here in Portland, or our regular one. It's not going to be as big this year, so I'm just going to go as a casual. But I'm really excited oh. to see some friends. So. Yeah, Fucking awesome. go, go get weird, bro. Yeah. Go get weird right, over man. there. All right, I'll Thanks. talk to you, dude. Thanks again. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thank you. All right. See you, man. Right, Later. Bye.